There's a lot of things that we don't talk about in our society right now. And one of those things is fatherhood. The role of fathers and the power of their presence and care is not explored that often or in much detail. But my next guest says that needs to change. And he points to the example of his own father, who was a lifeline for him while he was in prison. I got older and I was going through the most difficult time of my life. My dad showed up as the most incredible nurturer uh, you can imagine as a parent. You know, he was the one who was there on those visits. You know, he was there to hug me and love on me and make sure I was able to eat some food outside of the, the prison food. And so in those ways, I think that the narrative around dads, those things need to be included. Shaka Senghor is one of my favorite writers. He's a tech executive, a New York Times bestselling author, a former fellow at the MIT Media Lab, and a leading voice on criminal justice reform. He's also a former inmate, having served 19 years in prison, seven of which were in solitary confinement. Shaka's powerful new book is called Letters to the Sons of Society, a father's invitation to love, honesty, and freedom. And it is written to his two children and to the children in our world at large. I'm thrilled to have Shaka Senghor as my guest today on Lean Out. Shaka, welcome to Lean Out. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to catch up. It's been a while since we've talked last. It has been. Last time we sat down, we were in your kitchen in Koreatown in the before times. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a while ago. I, uh, I've i actually moved since then and bought a home here in L.A., so no longer in that apartment with the glorious view, but <laughs> happy, happy uh, with the home that we have. Well, it's great to be able to talk today about your new book, which, you know, I've mentioned to you, I thought was just exquisitely written. I want to open with reading a passage from the book. I have told the world about the murder. I have told the world about the life I led that brought me to that terrible point. I have told the world about the forgiveness for which I begged and that I was fortunate to receive. I have told the world about my hopes for other incarcerated children and men and women, my dreams of a new way of looking at how we rehabilitate instead of punishing. But I have never told the world, nor you, my dear sons, about the night when the luggage looms in the darkness, the night's that I am forced to breathe, really breathe, take a step away from yet another ledge and remake myself once again before the dawn arrives. What a powerful passage. Yeah, thank you so much for for reading that and reflecting it back. It definitely just transported me back to those moments and the things that, you know, oftentimes when we're doing work that, you know, speaks to our personal stories, people aren't thinking about the toll or the impact that it has on us as individuals. And I really wanted to capture that for my son so they'll understand more in depth what it's like to, you know, have so much of your personal experiences, you know, especially those less than sterile moments on public display. And I really wanted to ensure that they understood like what that looks like when it comes to, you know, solving tough problems and really giving people a path forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And turning those kind of moments of darkness into this incredibly beautiful writing and this sort of experience of humanity that I think so many people can find enriching. Yeah. You know, I I think, you know, for me as a, as a writer, one is really respecting the craft, which is, you know, and I think about my first book, I think people got so immersed in the story 
that they didn't account for the fact that I'm actually a writer and I really uh, have studied the craft. I've you know read some of the most beautiful and, and incredible writers that that we all know of. And so for me, anytime that I think about you know the stories that are important for me to tell and that I feel led to tell, I also think about the creative process of like how do you tell these stories in a way that's really inspiring, uplifting, and very insightful. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about this book in depth, but before we get to that, so for, for listeners who may be new to you, new to your work, new to your story, can you just give us a bit of a snapshot of your backstory, how you went from being a young honor roll student growing up on the east side of Detroit, dreaming of being a doctor, and then going to prison and, and finally coming out and becoming this New York Times bestselling author? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, when I, I at this stage of my life, I don't talk much about that part of my journey, I think, because I've written so extensively about it. You know, however, I, you know, I do think it's important to contextualize these conversations, you know, as a kid with, with dreams of being a doctor and with all the possibility and potential in the world. You know, unfortunately, I grew up in a very difficult household that I ran away from and thought that I would be welcomed into somebody else's home and wrapped in a love and care that all children are deserving of. But unfortunately, I found myself seduced into the drug trade where I encountered uh, high levels of gun trauma, gun-related trauma, including being shot at the age of 17, and then 16 months later, tragically shooting and causing a man's death and repeating that cycle of of PTSD and gun trauma in my community. And uh, I was sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison, ended up serving a total of 19 with seven of those years being in solitary confinement. And it was in solitary confinement when my journey as a writer and a storyteller and a truth teller really began. And, you know, fortunately, after 19 years, I was released back to society uh, in June of 2010. So I'm actually coming up on my 12th year of freedom and, you know, have done a tremendous amount of work around criminal justice, around personal transformation and, efforts to end gun violence in inner city. So that's work that I think, you know, as much as I do other stuff in the world, I'll always be passionate about working with young men and women uh, who come from communities and experiences similar to mine. Mm -hmm. And this book is so interesting because you're talking about fatherhood, you're talking about masculinity. It is inspired by letters your father wrote to you when you were in prison. In fact, his letters are on the cover of the book. Talk to me a little bit about what those letters did for you the correspondence between you and your father? Yeah, you know, I I realize, you know, especially at this stage of my life where I'm now a dad to a 30-year-old son as well as a 10-year-old son, Jay and Sekou, who both of who were my right to, but that these, this writing was really inspired by my experience with my dad. For 19 years of my incarceration, my dad wrote me. And, you know, he would write these beautiful, handwritten, long letters that really encapsulated the world he was navigating, you know, now as being the parent figure for my oldest son, Jay, who he was taking care of due to my incarceration. But one of the things that was great about, about the letters, you know, between my dad and I were really the lessons, you know, the life lessons about being a man, being a father, being a husband, but also just, you know, his sense of humor, his insights. We were able to you know, share things we were reading, our perspective on what we read. Uh, We were able to agree. We were able to disagree. And most importantly, we were able to heal 
some of the broken pieces of our past experiences and to really just unpack life choices that I made that led to me on the path that I was on, but also life choices that he made. And it's this incredible gift from a dad to a son as to the honesty and the emotional vulnerability. And my my goal with this book is to not only give that gift to my two sons, but to the sons of society at large. And those who love the sons, you know, the dads, the moms, the sisters, the lovers, you know, I think this book really speaks to the humanity in all of us, even though it's directed toward my two sons. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about your two sons. So the first letter to Jay, so, so powerful. Talk to the listeners a little bit about your process writing that. It's a very vulnerable, very raw letter. Yeah, that, that first letter, probably one of the harder letters to write, you know, because of, you know, the depth of emotional vulnerability and just the honesty, you know, the things that I got wrong as a dad, the things I came to understand about myself. And then there's just the horrific realities of inner city life and thinking about what happens to black boys and and, and thinking that my son was a victim of circumstances that so many young men in our community uh, have victimized, been victimized by, which is the high levels of gun violence. And, you know, oftentimes I think as parents, we find ourselves taking our children on journeys that they didn't agree to or even have on their personal chart of their own destination. You know, they weren't thinking about going on some of these journeys. And so when I got out of prison, I had this idea in mind of who I thought I was as a father and who I thought I needed to be. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. And so in that first letter, I really get down into the depth of what I think a lot of dads end up doing by default. You know, we try to mentor, we try to coach. And sometimes our children really just need us to be present. And I missed the mark on that. And I really wanted to to share that with my son so that he would understand, but also mentor so many young, young children across the country and outside, you know, even outside of America, you know, I'm, I'm mentoring through, you know, this incredible technology we have now. And I find that that pattern is similar when it comes to dads more often than mothers is that we show up as kind of the heroes, kind of the the disciplinarians and the ones who are kind of like, here, let me straighten you up so that you'll be ready for the world. And really what children need more than anything from their dads is just a presence, you know, Mm -hmm. the presence and the confidence that that gives children and the freedom that it gives them to really navigate life on their own. Mm. And you're in the book, you're really sort of expanding the narrative about fathers and the way that we see fathers and think about fathers. I want to read another quote. There is a trope in our culture of the absent father and the sainted single mother, but the reality for so many of us is agony. Do you really think we want to be away from our children? Who would choose such a thing? We have learned to take the second road, to acquiesce to the image of us as less than, as inadequate to the task of love. We are not inadequate to it. We yearn for it. But so often we find ourselves out there in the garage of our lives, away from the main rooms, stealing ourselves for either loss or reentry. Yeah, you know, I I get, you know, every time I think about that passage, I get really, you know, emotional because I have, you know, just incredible friends in my life who are just amazing dads. And, you know, I come from a family where all the men are really present, you know, and they're not just present as providers, you know, they're nurturers. You know, I think about, you know, when I was 16 years old and I attempted to commit suicide, 
you know, it was my dad that that sat by my bedside and nurtured me and helped me get back to a, a healthy space, you know, and I never forget, you know, I was 16 years old and, and him sitting literally on my bed and just like rubbing my head. And even though he didn't have all the answers, he had his presence, you know, and that emotional availability is something that I've seen, you know, historically in my family. And like, even now I can go home and, you know, I have an uncle, his name is Chris and he will still fix me a plate. I'm a, I'm like, I'm a grown man. I'm 50 <laughs> years old, but it's just that, that care that I've, I've witnessed with my friends and the men in my life. And like that narrative never gets talked about. Recently, I, I, I talked publicly about when I'm folding Sekou's clothes, there's a, there's an intimacy to that level of care. And it was, it was really sad because, you know, so many mothers kind of chimed in with a negative trope and kind of made it all about what their experiences are. And I think it's, I think it's important. I mean, we're a parent is a parent to me. Uh, like it doesn't matter what your gender is or what, you know, what, what title you hold. But in that moment, I was just expressing what I feel as a dad. And I don't think that that should be diminished because somebody else has the same experience or has had that narrative told countless times. But my dad, you know, my dad cooked, my dad cleaned the home. My dad also worked and provided and did all the other things that's typically associated with manhood. But none of the things that he did were one-offs or they, they weren't outliers in our family. And, you know, even now me as a, as a dad and, you know, I'm relatively successful, but there are still things that are important for me to do. And it's, and it's been that way since Seiko has been born. I've always been, you know, a, a caretaker of him. I've always been a, a nurturer in, in the ways that I, I feel capable of. And obviously it's different from his mom because energetically we're just different. I think she is a little more serious than I am. I'm, I'm, I'm more like the fun, chill parent, you know, but our nurturing shows up just different, you know, and there's moments where Sekou is like, well, dad, I'm just going to come, you know, I want a hug. You know, and I'm fully present in that. And and there were some things that I didn't experience in in my childhood that, you know, my dad and I, we talked about because he hadn't had those experiences. But as I got older and I was going through the most difficult time of my life, my dad showed up as the most incredible nurturer you can imagine as a parent. You know, he was the one who was there on those visits. You know, he was there to hug me and love on me and make sure I was able to eat some food outside of the, the prison food. And so in those ways, I think that the narrative around dads, those things need to be included and they, and they don't have to be included in a way that takes away from what mothers have historically done over, over time. But we also don't need to be kind of beat down because we decided to share that this is what brings us joy in parenting. And this is part of our responsibility as parents It's just to me, at the end of the day, it's just parenting. Mm. We're in a funny moment for sort of talking about masculinity. I mean, on the one hand, there's this sort of progressive dialogue about toxic masculinity. And I, I understand that. And, you know, we talked last time in our interview about the kind of masculinity you saw in prison and how limiting that is. So I understand that. But in some ways, it can sometimes limit talking about what it means to be a man and a father as well. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the terminology toxic masculinity, like a lot of uh, the terminologies that's now in our pop culture, I think a lot of those things have lost their original flavor. 
and the original intentions. And now they're just kind of weaponized in a way to dismiss behaviors that sometimes we either don't understand or we're uncomfortable with. And, you know, I think it's, it's really hypocritical, honestly, because on one hand, we're really talking about how do we create this collective culture of centering our humanity. But then on the other hand, there's this kind of othering when we, when we use a language that doesn't really contextualize like certain behaviors. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of like a lazy approach, which I think is just kind of where we're at as a culture where we don't really lean into intellectual dialogue. You know, we're not, we're not curious enough to really understand why people behave in a manner in which they behave in. So the easiest thing is to dismiss, dismiss their behavior with language that immediately erects a wall as opposed to builds a bridge. And so, you know, I try to steer away from, from that language whenever possible. What I try to do is just kind of lead with my humanity, which is an ever-evolving thing. And I think that's where we're kind of limiting ourselves and our potential as a society is because we put this finality on people based on one incident as opposed to recognize that we're all evolving. You know, as long mm-hmm. as you're living, you're evolving, you're growing, there's potential to bring in new information, there's potential to learn new things. And I think that is really important when we're talking about what does it mean to be masculine? And, and sometimes there, there's contradictions that that may seem counterintuitive, you know, like, can you be a nurturer and still love football on Sundays? You know, <laughs> or can you be can you be anti-interpersonal violence, but tune into the latest, you know, boxing or UFC match? And I think that's just what it what to me, like that's the complexities of of being a man. I don't I don't think we talk enough about how complex the emotional makeup of men really, really is. You know, I think we, we've kind of simplified us to these barbaric tropes and, and it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I can watch the saddest of sad movies and, and, and cry tears and then tune in to the latest football game and, and watch people crash their bodies up in, in celebration of this crazy athletic feat. And, and I think both of those things are fine. At least they're fine for me. You know, I think once we get to a space where we can be more honest about the nuances of differences that we often have, you know, I don't, I don't think we're all the same, whether it's racially, whether it's gender wise. I think there are some nuanced things. And of course, we can be anything we imagine ourselves to be. But I do think from a cultural standpoint, there are some things we just differ in. And I think differences can be OK as well. Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about cancel culture. It's something I've written about a lot in the last year. You're actually the first person that I learned about cancel culture from in our last interview. <laughs> Walk me through your your sort of feelings about where we're at with cancel culture now. I, I think I think we're at a real sad time right now. You know, again, I think it points to just like the intellectual laziness. I don't think that we're, you know, we really are in a space where we actually care about solving the thing. I think we're just more interested in exalting ourselves at the expense of somebody else's misstep, misdeed, or poor judgment. And I, and I and I just don't, I think, you know, because of how I live my life, my personal story, my personal narrative, I believe in redemption. I believe that people should be given an opportunity to atone. And I think people should be given an opportunity to make things right. And you and that that requires an invitation from us all exiling people because they have an opinion that's not popular without understanding how they arrived at that conclusion. Like that does a disservice to us as human beings. Like it doesn't allow us 
want to grow and it doesn't allow people an opportunity to heal and to uh, reinvent themselves or reimagine themselves. And, and now with social media, I mean, we have, you know, billions of, of, of journalists. Now everybody's a journalist. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's a thought leader, you know, sitting at home in front of their computer or on whatever device and just lodging these, these judgments that end up taking on, you know, this kind of avalanche like effect that, that really impacts the quality of people's lived experience. And I think we have to be careful with that. You know, we have to be careful with how we're canceling people when it's something that, that really doesn't require that. You know, I think of some of the bigger, you know, people who they've attempted to cancel. You know, you think of somebody like Kanye, who, you know, has a very public profile, an incredibly talented, brilliant genius of an artist and a creator. And he's also a very complex human being who's had to navigate, you know, his mental health challenges on the biggest public platform in the in the world. And to think of what that does to a human being subconsciously and to think of what it does when people are saying, well, hey, he did this one thing that oftentimes doesn't even impact the quality of their lives. But it's like we should eradicate this person as opposed to think of ways to help people. And that's, you know, I, I try to lean in with help first. And I think that's important. But I think now there's such a emotional, social, you know, return on investment when you can just knock somebody else without having to contextualize how they got to that space in the first place. Mm. And you mentor a lot of young kids across the country. Do they talk to you about this issue? Is this something that's on their radar? I think, I think kids are way smarter than, than those of us who identify as adults. And I don't think they really care as much about cancel culture as the people who really benefit from it, which oftentimes are people who are monetizing their platforms, you know, by by really demonizing people and, you know, fig- figuring out who can they attack next to keep their likes and their views up and things of that nature. So I, I don't think kids care as much. You know, I think kids are way smarter than they're giving credit for. I think they're thinking about deeper issues, you know, more impactful issues and, and, and I definitely want to say that there have been moments within castle culture that absolutely made sense that, you know, the, the offense was so egregious, uh, so harmful that there was no reason to continue to celebrate the people who caused the harm. And I think in, in those ways, that was that was very, you know, important to do. You know, I think about the, the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement where we were really challenging the idea that men can move through the world harming women without consequences or responsibility. And I think in those ways, that was that was such an important time period for us to really this reckoning. You know, you think about the social injustice and really calling to accountability decision makers and policymakers mm-hmm. and canceling those who were not doing the jobs they were paid to do. Like, I think in that instance, it made a lot of sense, you know, but, but to counsel someone because they have a differing opinion or because they've made a, a, a public mistake or a poor decision, you know, I just think that's really a stretch, you know. And I mean, we can go as recent as the, the latest Oscar debacle and, and everything that happened there. And fortunately, I think Will Smith has a, a track record of, of genuinely being a good human being, being an incredible talent, an incredible resource for so many people 
uh, that I don't think his his behavior will rise to the occasion of him being canceled. But had he not been Will Smith, the likelihood of him being canceled would have been very high. And so I think that offers us an opportunity of, of when we can look at the everyday person with that same sensitivity, that same sense of, hey, that wasn't okay. We understand to some degree, but we're willing to allow you to rectify that. You know, I think that makes for a better world. Mm. I want to switch gears for a moment and talk a little bit about racism. You've written to your sons about that issue, about the real fear that you feel at certain points as a black man in America. And there's a, a moment that really stands out in the book where you are cleaning dog poo in the middle of the night. Yeah. Tell me a little bit. Tell that story for us. Yeah, I, you know, so we had we had just got a, a puppy who unfortunately is now the, the deceased. We had got this beautiful puppy and and like, you know, many puppies as they're growing, they get sick, they eat something and they have a bad reaction. And my our puppy was, you know, he was still being crate trained. He was really little and, you know, he pooped all in the crate and it was just the most horrific smell in the middle of the night at two, three in the morning. And I'm I'm up. And, you know, I, had, I hadn't been in my home long. You know, I, had, I think I'd probably been here maybe seven or eight months in a new neighborhood. I'm one of only the black men that I see on my block. I, I know that's young. That's like kind of, well, I'm not super young, but, you know, I, I kind of dress in a way that's more aligned with hip hop culture, which is where, where I come from. And I just remember that night of, of bringing the crate out and it was a noisy affair. You know, I'm dragging this big old crate out of the house. I got to put the puppy in a different crate. I got to wash the crate down. And I remember just freezing in panic because it was three o'clock in the morning. It's in LA, but LA nights are really chilly. I'm like in, you know, black jogging pants, a black hoodie. And I'm out here in this new neighborhood making all this noise. And what I was thinking to myself is that what if one of my neighbors call the police and when the police arrive, what does that encounter look like? And and it was terrifying to think that, you know, one, it's three in the morning. I don't have my ID on me. I don't have the keys. I just opened up the door, came out. And, you know, am I going to be confronted as a homeowner who's dealing with what many homeowners deal with all the time, a puppy who's sick at three in the morning, you know, or, you know, any other things that, that we think about. And it's that nuanced reality of living in a society that's very racialized, uh, being a black man in a predominantly white world that has shaped the identity of how people tend to see us. And so when, when I, when I was in that moment, like it was paralyzing and I had to do some self-talk like, okay, this isn't happening. This is just a thought it's triggered by all these other things that do happen, but this is not what's happening right in this moment. Clean the poop up, get the puppy in the safety. You'll be fine. But that's what it's like being, you know, black in America, you know, black in a society that has demonized black men specifically in a way that has been hurtful and harmful. And, and you know, when I think about what's going on with us as, as, as black males, our stories often aren't told in a very honest way. You know, they're not told fully. You know, I was just talking to my girlfriend last night and we were talking about you know, the levels of gun violence and the, the death rate for black males in America. And, you know, the reality is if as many white boys were killed in America by gun violence 
as black boys are killed, it would be considered a humanitarian crisis. And we don't treat it that way. And so the, the perception is that, you know, black male life has little value in society. And that's one of the things that I really want to change. Mm. You also wrote about a moment that was quite dicey outside a barber shop and how that moment was able to shift. Can you tell us that story as well? Yeah, so that, that story happened when I was in Cincinnati and somebody had made a false call and said that we were a group of black guys were obstructing traffic. And actually, we weren't even in the street. We were on a sidewalk in front of a barber shop that had just won a grant for us that I was responsible for uh, helping celebrate this opportunity for them to win $10,000 to remodel their barbershop. And so the police were called and a young white police officer came and we ended up having an exchange that turned out to be very powerful and very beautiful because we both leaned into our humanity. And when I asked him what was going on, he told me about the false call. I told him that, you know, that he should come into the barbershop and meet the owners. And he was, he was, you know, hesitant to do so because he felt like just his uniform alone would cause the party to kind of go flat. And so I told him, I was like, well, Jerome Bettis, Hall of Fame NFL football players inside. And initially he didn't believe me. So I went and got Jerome Bettis and he came out and the officer got really emotional because Jerome Bettis was his dad's favorite player and his dad had passed. Mm. And so in that moment, we were just three boys, you know, we were three boys, you know, it wasn't Jerome Bettis, the NFL football player, it wasn't, you know, the officer, it wasn't a writer. It was just three boys, you know, talking about our dads and, and our experiences as men. And, and it just turned into this very positive experience. And I ended up writing a Facebook post and it went viral. It probably has over 18 million views at this point. And, and, and that really spoke to me about where we're at in terms of the everyday person. I think people are wanting more hopeful outcomes. You know, I think people are wanting to see more of these stories that actually happen all the time. Like they're not, it's not a one-off. I think the, the narrative around all of these things have been centered on the most negative aspect, but there, there's the system and then there's the people. And, you know, we have some systems that are bad that good people exist in. And a lot of times I think the, the bad people within those systems overshadowed, you know, the good experiences. And I really wanted to highlight what it looks like in real time when you just lean into your humanity. Mm, such a great story. And just to close, Shaka, you mentor young men across the country. What do you think society as a whole is not seeing about these kids? What, what do you want everyone to know? Yeah, what I, what I want everyone to know is that boys crave love and acceptance in a way that we just haven't really thought about. You know, they look forward to hugs. They look forward to having their hair tussled. They look forward to being able to fall asleep on their dad's lap. And, and, and I think that they crave like emotional intimacy and, and I think they crave vulnerability. And, and what I've found is that every time I've mentored a group of young boys and, you know, it starts off with that kind of hard shell, but once that shell is peeled back, you know, you see these beautiful children who are trying to understand the world and understand their place in it. And I think lastly, you know, we don't allow our boys to be kids long enough. We're too busy trying to usher them into adulthood, into manhood. And I think we're missing out on the opportunity 
of letting them navigate their innocence for as long as possible and the joy that comes with that, you know, because with innocence comes curiosity and with curiosity comes great adventures. And I think we have to, you know, create space for our boys to go on more great adventures and to be as curious as anyone else in the world and to be affirmed with love and affection, because I think that creates healthier adults. I think it creates more loving men, more caring and compassionate men, but we can't expect men to grow up and be compassionate, loving, and vulnerable if we shut that down while they're boys. You know, if we tell them to stop crying, if we tell them to toughen up when they're actually hurt, if we tell them that boys don't cry and we tell them to run away from love because that makes them weak, then we create weak men. And so, you know, what I, what I would say is that, you know, love your boys in a way that you would desire to be loved so that they can grow up and become the loving men that you desire to be loved by. And I think that's something that we're, we've been missing. And, and, you know, if we can expand the narrative around that, I just think it, it's a game changer. That's a lovely place to leave it. This is such a powerful book. It is so well-written. I hope everyone reads it. And thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me and looking forward to more. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.